Welcome friends to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. Welcome everybody to Someone Gets Me. I have with us Zach Ward. You probably know him from A Christmas Story, but he's much more than A Christmas Story. He has been in the entertainment world since he was eight years old. And he comes by it rightly, hit through his family and support from people around him. Today, we're gonna talk to Zach about his journey, A Christmas Story, his current work, and whatever else we come up with. So grab some tea or coffee and get ready for a great time with my new friend, Zach Ward. Welcome to the show, Zach. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. So tell us a little bit about how you got into acting and show business. I read it, some of it in your bio and it's very intriguing of the normal life in the family and how you were able to follow your own passion. Uh, my mom's name is Pamela Hyatt. Uh, she's an actress. She studied, um, she's originally from Long Island, New York, and then she studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Acting in England uh, in the early 50s, late 50s, mm-hmm. and then she met a cinematographer there and then moved to Canada, Canadian cinematographer, moved to Canada, and was performing in Canada for many years um, before she got divorced. But she, she, in a short period of time, became very successful, became known as Canada's Carol Burnett. So she had quite uh, the esteem in Canada. And then uh, when I grew up, so she met my dad, Todd Ward, and uh, I was a love child. They didn't get married. And then, um, so I would travel around the country with my mom as she was looking, going from one job to another, um, performing in plays or musicals or um, film or television. And uh, we were in Stratford, Ontario. So in Canada, there is a sister city to Stratford on the Avon in England. And it's called Stratford, Ontario. So we were living there and my mom was performing at the Stratford Festival uh, with um, uh, Maggie Smith at the time, Mm -hmm. which is... Yeah, as you know, who Dane right. Maggie Smith is. Yeah. And so I was very well educated around the stories of Shakespearean plays. And there was one in particular I was very excited to see, even at the age of eight, because it was dirty and naughty and funny. Um, and many people, you know, when they think of Shakespeare, the way my mom explained it to me when I was a kid, it was far more like the married with children. Right. Green age, you know what I mean? Uh-huh, so it right. Was pretty and silly and, and, and it was perfect for an eight-year-old boy. Um, and when I went to go see it, I was really disappointed in the delivery of the actor doing the lines. And at that point, I thought I could do better than that actor. And so... Um, I, I asked permission to be able to do that, and my mom said no. She wanted me to have a normal life. And my older brother, Carson Foster, uh, basically fought on my behalf for a couple of years, asking my mother to define what a normal life is. 
And then um, my mother acquiesced. And when we moved back to Toronto, I started auditioning for commercials. So I spent about, I spent a year auditioning for commercials before I got my first job. And that means I probably auditioned 20 or 30 times. Right. Um, and then in the following year, I did, in the following two years, I did probably three or five commercials. And then my first big audition was a Christmas story. And it wasn't really considered a big audition at the time in the sense that it was uh, a cattle call, uh, meaning there's hundreds of kids show up and you literally walk in uh, and you've got all of like 30 seconds uh, in front of a, a casting director and a VHS camera set up. That was the new technology back then. Right. Um, all right, slate your name. Hi, I'm Zach. I'll tell you, blah, blah, blah. How old are you? Blah, blah, blah. Say your line. Nah, you're Aunt Tilly. Get over here. Okay, thank you. And you. So, um, you know, there's basically like six or seven callbacks, which are exactly what they sound like. And then I got the job, and then I uh, I'd never met the director because he was in Los Angeles prepping the film. And then I went to set, and I met Yano Anaya. I uh, sorry, I went to wardrobe, um, and I met. Uh, I got put in the outfit with the hat and the all the gear and. Uh -huh. um, I met Yano Anaya, and then uh, we went to set, and we met Bob Clark together. And then side by each, Bob could see that I was like a foot taller than Yano. And uh, Bob said, oh, uh, mm. all right, he gets your lines, you get his. So we kept the character names of Scott Farkas and Grover Dill. Right. We just swapped dialogue. So previously, Scott Farkas had been the sidekick. And then Scott Farkas was the bully. So that's how I became Scott Farkas. Ha <laughs> Scott Farkas the bully. That's interesting how they just changed it like that and you got and pulled it off. That's very, very exciting. So your energy doesn't have that of a bully. So how did how were you able to play a bully when you're not a bully? Uh, well the thing that Bob Clark did was that he hired all these kids to basically play who they were. In the sense that he didn't hmm, he didn't try to jam a square peg into a round hole. I was a very bombastic kid. I went to eight different schools before junior high. So I was a new kid at eight different schools with no dad named Zach, which was a weird name. Um, I had a, didn't play hockey because we had no money. had a miniature poodle named Tinkerbell. I got in fights all the time. It wasn't because I started fights, but I was picked on all the time. So to me, making fun of these kids was payback and yeah. you know when you, when you travel a lot as a, as a kid i'm sure anybody out there who's like uh an army brat um when you travel a lot you very quickly have to sort of learn how to ingratiate yourself uh with the new environment and if you're not the world's toughest man then comedy is the best social lubricant so you very quickly learn how to play comedy right as a kid. and and that's a skill set. Like I'll, I say this in all honesty, really pretty people don't need. Like really pretty people or people who stay in one school, they don't need. They grow up with the same kids all the time. They take the same dynamic from kindergarten all the way to graduation. But if you're 
going to eight different schools before junior high. Think about that. That's a lot. That's, uh, that's a lot. Uh, that's like one and a half schools a year, right? Right. right. Always a new kid. Always a new kid. Not enough time to really settle in. That means that you're constantly in the process of creating new relationships. You're constantly in the process of going through the same process right. of people making fun of you for whatever they can. My name is Zach. I have red hair. Oh, that's great. Make fun of me for that. So, you know, when I was a kid, I heard a million times, um, what's up, carrot top, you know? Oh. And that's just a stupid insult. And But I'm sure everybody out there relates to the, to the experience of being humiliated or belittled, um, insulted in such a way that, you know, you get and someone makes fun of you and then you're walking home from school and you're upset about it and you're crying and you're like, you know what I would have said? You know what I would have said? Well, when you do that 20 or 30 times, you actually come up with what you would have said. <laughs> right, right. It actually so, shows up. Yeah. So when somebody calls you carrot top for the 60th time, by grade two, and they're all different people, you have a comeback. Like, you've thought about this, man. <laughs> right. This is bugging you. So my comeback was, and I remember this, someone called me, what's up, Carrot Top? And my response was, Carrot Tops are green, or can't your mom afford vegetables? Ooh, yeah. That's right, snap. Now, not, not like George Carlin-level genius, let's be honest, but on the flip side... It shut down my opponent. It took the power away from my opponent. And when that happened, I realized that I had more power in my words than they did in their mom mentality. And I had this moment of recognizing my own superpower. Yep. So for me, this was Groundhog Day. And I'd gone through it over and over and over again. Right. These poor idiots didn't know what was happening. Didn't know that I practiced and failed this line over and over and over again. And finally, I nailed it. Got and it. I, yeah, right? So that became something that I worked towards. Like, I, I, I wouldn't say that I did that in the same way I do work now, but I, it was something that I recognized, and I recognized that I could see the matrix where the other kids couldn't. And so it was, it was one of those things like, I knew how to mess with the bullies. Doesn't mean I stopped fighting. Right. Because um, I had no problem fighting. I was a good fighter. My dad was a Golden Gloves boxer. I didn't get to see him a lot. But the little that I, I spent time with him, I understood how to throw, throw hands. But it helped me how to pause them before they all ganged up on me at once. Yeah. So it, it was like, it was something that I was able to use and identify, and especially if you're a kid going to a bunch of schools, you see the same habits, and you see the same personalities, and the mm -hmm. traits repeated over and over. And all these kids think they're special, but there's the exact same jackhole, and that uh, male or female in every single school that you go right. to, and they right. they think they're special, but they're just a, they're just duplications over and over and over again. So once you can start seeing the matrix around you. You can see how to mock it, how to mirror it, how to fit into it. It really changes your 
experience with the with society. So I think uh, for for me, Scott Farkas, it was very simple to mock and belittle the people that I had been mocked, belittled, and beaten by. And therefore, I think that's why Scott Farkas is such a good combination. Um, and I'm not taking credit for this. It's, it's due to my life experience, Bob Clark's uh, uh, directing and casting, and the writing, and the editing. But I think all those things came together. And, and because at a young age, I had the ability to perceive the reality of my opponents and how cowardly and weak they actually were, that instead of being like a true bully, you know, I was, Scott Farkas is a lie. Because as soon as Scott Farkas gets knocked on his keister and punched in the nose a couple of times, he's just a sniffling wuss. <laughs> so it's all pretense. It's all bluster. And that's really what I think makes Scott Farkas work is that, you know, there is, don't look at the great little man behind the green curtain. It, right. the, Scott Farkas knows he's bluster, which I think is, yeah. So I, well, I think all those things came together to help create that opportunity. Oh, yes. And it, it was like that, like the perfect storm all came together. And, yeah. and, and it makes it powerful and magical. And you being able to see the matrix and what's really going on really added depth to the whole situation. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It was yeah. pretty cool. Yes. Now when I see the movie again, because I watch it every year, now when I watch it again, I'm going to listen to it with your story and it'll even be more magical. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. You know, like, because it's like, I, I was, that was my biggest question was I wanted to know, like, because you were a kid and, yeah. you know, and I, I work with a lot of young people who are, you know, in theater a lot and musicians and things like that. And I always want to know, like, what's happening for the person at the moment, because the, right. A Christmas Story wasn't a, um, a cult following at the time. You know, it was, like you yeah. said, it was a cattle call. It was a movie. It was, yeah, the movie failed in the in the theaters, but um, you know, and I also think one of the biggest things. Sorry, I'm messing with the light. I, I think one of the biggest things for being a good actor is uh, reading, reading books, mm -hmm. um, and being able to identify with characters you've never met. Yeah, does that make sense? Yes, reading is really important. I think because that's how you can get into those worlds. Yeah, you, know? you have to be able to translate, transfer yourself into another universe and be able to relate to that person. Um, and I think there's a certain level of, you know, books and movies are all about empathy. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have the ability to share emotions with somebody else. Like when we watch a, a scary movie, we jump and we pull back and we scream. And, and it's a freaking movie, man. There's no way... No one's coming out of the screen and grabbing you and stabbing you, but that's, we know that. And that's part of the fun. Um, so I think the more you make yourself emotionally empathic and sympathetic, uh, and you can experience other people's lives vicariously, uh, then you can express that. Whereas if you only experience, had your own experience and you can't walk a mile in another man or woman's shoes, right? then how do you express another story besides your own and find sympathy in that? Right, and be able to relate on that deeper empath empathic level where you can really connect with whoever the character is. 
Maybe, maybe. maybe uh, politicians should have to do acting class. Yes. <laughs> ah, that would be fun. <laughs> the worst acting ever. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but it would be it would be interesting. I can put that word to it, I guess. So what? Right now, after all of these years, and you've been lots of films, and you're working on your own projects and things, and it's not like it was a one-hit thing. You did that movie, and then you're doing something else. You've stayed in the entertainment world, in the acting world. And what kind of role is your current favorite role to do? Like, if the, the perfect thing was to just drop in your lap, what would that look like? Wow, I would like that a lot. Um, well, to recap with your audience, so... Over a period of, I started acting when I was professionally when I was 10 years old. I am 51 now. So that brings us to a period of 41 years that I've been in the film industry. Um, I've done 120 odd films. I've had three TV series. I've done like 80, um, 80 guest stars and a whole bunch of commercials, so forth. Now I've been writing and directing. Uh, I'm, I'm directing my I'm producing my fourth film, and it's the second one that I've directed. And this is like the ninth or tenth film I've written. Um, so it's it's interesting because you really do, especially nowadays, you have the opportunity to extrapolate your skill set into other worlds that you know you couldn't do when I was a kid. You couldn't. A Christmas Story was shot on 35 millimeter film. You can't afford that, but you can afford shooting something on your cell phone and putting it up on YouTube and editing it on Premiere Pro on your laptop, which is all viable, you know, studio-level software, uh, not the phone, obviously. Um, so I think the difference is that from where I came from as a kid to where people are now is that they have the opportunity to experiment and really no excuse. Um, yes. There, there's no one stopping you except yourself. Um, so if you're not making content, it's because you chose not to make content instead of because you couldn't get a job, which was more along the lines of my world. Um, I don't know. What would be the perfect job? I, I love writing and directing and producing. Um, I don't really care for acting and directing in the same project unless I've got a big enough crew and budget that when I'm acting, I don't have to be worried because I've done it. Right. I did it on a low-budget feature called Restoration, and um, the movie turned out really well. Uh, my mom's in it, actually, which is great, and I'm, I'm like the tertiary lead in it, the third lead, mm -hmm. and uh, what a raging pain in the butt. Like, <laughs> the budget was so low. So it's like a, a $75,000 movie. Right. right. It got distribution and it got pretty damn good reviews. Um, but carrying that much weight, and I don't, for anybody who's directed before, you know, you don't get to sleep. And then that's fine when no one has a close up of your face. Uh, so it's a lot to do when there's no money. Um, I would love to act in something if, uh, and direct it if there was a good budget. So I, I would love to have something in a, five to ten million dollar budget range and uh, something that's funny and heartfelt and, and a little bit of action and a little bit of fantasy that would be well that sounds like a great combination i love the action and fantasy together well that's the thing i'm working on now but the, the one i'm doing right now 
again, no budget, but it looks freaking awesome. So uh, that's Patsy Lee and the Keepers of the Five Kingdoms. So it's uh, it's like the Goonies meets uh, Dark Crystal. Ooh, that sounds fun. It's hard. It looks amazing, but it's really it's a lot of work. The <laughs> weird, like this type of movie is usually between, you know, the reason why you see so many low budget horror films and so many low budget action films is because they're cheap to make. Oh, okay. So it's uh. But you don't see a lot of low-budget Dark Crystals. You know, you don't okay. see a lot of low-budget kids' movies um, that are good because, like, having kids in a film is expensive. So our we're doing this movie, you know, at the in in the SAG tier levels. You have something called low budget, and low budget is like two point five million and below. And then you have um, modified low budget, which is about I think it's about seven eighty to eight nine hundred thousand dollars. Then you've got um, so it's modified. Low budget is two point five. Modified is about eight to nine. Then you've got uh, ultra uh, ultra low budget, which is under two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And so our shooting budget was two hundred thirty seven thousand dollars for a movie that's typically at a twenty to fifty million dollar price point. Wow. It's a lot of work. A lot of work. It's a lot of work. I'd love to do something like this again and just get paid properly for it and have enough money to take care of my crew. That would that'd be awesome. That would be cool. So what possessed you to move forward with something with that didn't have the budget that maybe you would have otherwise preferred? What What's that dream that is bringing this to life? Uh, so I... Do you know, uh, so uh, the actor James Hong, James Hong is a Chinese gentleman. He's 92 years of age. He was in Big Trouble in Little China. He was in, yeah, yeah he has, he's been around for a million years. You should put a picture of him up on your, up on your screen. Um, he was in um, Balls of Fury. He was in uh, uh, Wayne's World. He was in Blade Runner. He's got a million credits. Um, so anyways, he had reached out to my producing partner to do this, to do a project and he had investors on the hook to do it. And he had this script that uh, he wanted to do. And it was the worst script I think I've ever read in my life. It was horrible. It was horrible. 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 Made no sense at all. Just atrocious. Uh, yeah. There, there was a scene in it. It's supposed to be a G-rated kids movie, right? Right. Um, it opens up with uh, teen boys smoking. So right away, according to the, uh, the MPAA, that's R rating. And then right. they have a scene where they, there's a 14-year-old girl who goes to visit a friend, and the bad guys, it's supposed to be funny, but there's two, still two men come behind this 14-year-old girl, and they um, put a bag over her face, throw in the back of a car and stick a gun in her head. And uh, that's like an automatic hell now. Like there's just, there was no understanding um, of how to make something like this. And right. so I, I talked to my producing partner, I'm like, we can't make the script that he's made, but if he's willing to let us do a page one rewrite, there's an opportunity here to make something that we don't usually get to do. So 
you know, not everything you do is for money. Sometimes it's for the rarity of the opportunity, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And um, so that's what we got into. And uh, we bit off way more than we could chew. And, uh, uh, but it's looking fantastic. It looks really, really great. I think every gifted person in the world is like a time optimist. We're like, oh, yeah, we can pull that off. Yeah, that's easy. And then we get into it and go, whoa, what have we done? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right? And, and it's, always, it's always a surprise. And so that's why you just keep rolling with it. But I totally get that. I do that more than once in my own work. I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. And then I go, oh, okay, this is, this is bigger than I thought, or this is different somehow. You know what? You know what I love about producing and directing too is like, every, I this is my fourth feature producing, and uh, I gotta say like I've definitely learned from my past experiences. Everything that went wrong in the first movies, don't blink. Very good film. You should check it out. Mm-hmm. Sabari, Brian Austin Green, myself, Joanne. Can't remember last name. Wonderful actress. Uh, don't blink. And then Restoration, mm-hmm. Bethany, and now this one. Everything that went wrong in those last four films has not gone wrong in this one. In this one, totally different things have gone absolutely wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's when you take a deep breath and go, all right. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So what do you do for stress relief? What do you do to... to to help yourself deal with stress and and stay healthy and be active and alive and creative and motivated to, wow, personally that's been really hard that's been really hard this year uh be honest with you this year's yeah. been brutal in so many ways um i laugh a lot with my wife my wife and i get along i mean i've been very very lucky that i've spent you know like everybody else i basically quarantined up as soon as we had to and um I've been stuck in a house with this fantastic woman who makes me smile and laugh and, oh, and our nice. arguments are brief and, and clear uh, when we have them. But there's, I'm very fortunate that way. There's a lot of laughter and a lot of joy that way. Um, on the flip side, there's also a lot of uh, slam your head against the wall, shut the hell up and just get your job done. Because if you want it, you have to be, the person who gets it finished because no one cares more than you do or why should they? So there's that. Um, there's the occasionally, um, wallowing in self pity that happens. Yeah. Um, and then getting bored with that. Um, you know, I, I think you know, in, in my process as a, as an actor, as a writer, as a, as a director, editor, Sometimes it's very, very important to walk away from the project in order to come back with new eyes. Um, Sometimes it's very important to see other people's material. Uh, A is inspiration, and I mean that in in, um, different ways. Um, I came up with a saying, and uh, feel free to share this. The saying goes like this. Great movies are inspirational and you can change the same thing great art is inspirational right bad art is motivational because 
my entire career was based on a crappy performance in Taming of the Shrew when I was eight years old. I watched this guy screw up dialogue that I was waiting to hear because it was dirty and it was naughty and I was eight years right. old and I was going to laugh. And he effed it up and I sat there with little crossed eight-year-old arms and I thought, ah, well, I could do better than that guy. And sometimes when you watch a crappy movie or even a great movie, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, sometimes great movies are intimidating. You couldn't dare touch the hem of its skirt because it's so perfect, you know? Um, but then you watch something that's garbage that other people like, and you're like, ah, but I can do better than this guy. All I got to do is push. And, you know, even like every t- my poor wife, every time we watch a movie, yesterday we were watching Men in Black. I love Men in Black. Great movie, fantastic movie. And there are moments that I'm like pausing and going, wait, 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 did you see this? So <laughs> I know, it's exhausting. So there's... There's, there's uh, Fresh Prince, Will, Will Smith, and Tommy Lee Jones. They're getting in the car, and they're backing up, and the camera is ramped up. They, they've, they've sped up the footage almost to a ridiculous level. It's shockingly obvious, and it's used in basically, it's got to be like you know, a three-second shot. But here is a $150 million movie that cranked up the footage like they just got out of film school. And you know oh. why? You know why? Because if it works, it works. Who cares? Don't overthink it. You, it freaking worked. You, you crank it up faster? Okay. You crank it up the other way? Great. Looks good. Are you, the filmmaker, going to notice it? Absolutely. Is everybody else? No. And if they do, are they going to care? No. Is it going to connect them to the story? Sure. And that's the same thing with editing. Like one of my favorite movies of all time is True Romance. I love that movie. And they're editing screw-ups in their film. Um, in the big scene at the end where they're trading the coke and all the, uh, the cops come in and the mafia come in, um, there's a whole bunch of small little editing screw-ups. But they're not screw-ups, they're choices. And it means that obviously on the day they didn't get the exact coverage. Somebody in continuity screwed up. Somebody didn't get the exact movement. So on one, the wide shot, my hands are up here. But on the reverse, my hands are on my side. But the thing is, it worked because the motion of the scene worked. Right, right. that's, That's the other thing. It's like, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Nobody ever, nobody stepped into the ring and became heavyweight champion on their first fight. Steven Spielberg didn't make Schindler's List when he was nine. He started off playing with like hand cranked Bolex eight millimeter cameras and toy soldiers in his backyard. Right? Right. So, right. And what all those other movies are there. Yes, to be inspirational, but also to be motivational. So as you start falling in love with your art, you know, any real artist starts breaking down their craft. And so that they can see the seams and the stitches and the editing points and the makeup, as it were. 
and then they can see behind, they can see the man behind the green curtain. Right. We're referencing right. Wizard of Oz. And that's great. Magicians all know how the trick works. Doesn't make the performance less impressive. So great movies are inspirational. Bad movies are motivational. Get off your ass and change your life. Or don't. And either way, you pay the consequence. Either way, you get off your ass, change your life, things happen, and if you don't, things happen. So you, exactly. get, to, you get to pick the, the potential desired outcome based on action and motivation. You pay one way or the other. That's right. So um, have you ever gotten stuck in an overthinking loop? Oh my God, yes. Oh my God, yes. What do you oh do to God. what do you do to get out of overthinking loops? A lot of the listeners ask me to have my guests talk about how they kind of transcend or get on the other side of overthinking and like how it creates that procrastination and stuckness. Like what are some things that you've done to help you get on the other side of that? You have a choice in life. Risk, failure, or risk failure. If you don't try you end up failing in life because you never attempted anything. So you're the guy at the Christmas party with no stories to tell because you never did anything interesting. Right. Um, or you can risk failing by attempting and learning through the process. And that's the reality of any filmmaker, any artist, any mm -hmm. dancer, martial artist, singer, there's a scientist. There's not a single process in the universe that doesn't uh, accelerate on its own learning curve um, and if you and if you are if you are paralyzed we call it analysis paralysis right you wonder if what it is that you're being paralyzed by where are you taking responsibility for your life who are you in this moment um, because this is your life no one else is gonna live it for you and if you don't take charge of it, why should anybody else care? Mm -hmm. Just just go be a barista. Just go get a nine to five. Watch a lot of TV. I mean, that's it. Eat a lot of candy and cakes. Get your diabetes. Get your feet cut off. Die around 55, 60. And when you die, you know, people will say they were. That person was. They were here. They paid their taxes and they took up space. If that's what you want. You have every right to want that. And good for you. I'm glad you found your passion. Uh, if you want more, then you also have to realize that it's up to you to do more. So, you know, uh, I meet people all the time who talk to me about wanting to come out to California and go to film school, like what I would do back in, back in the uh, pre-pandemic years when I, I could do conventions and raise money for different charities. I'd have all these kids coming out like we want to, Zach. Uh, we want to go out to want to go out to Hollywood and go to film school and blah blah blah, and want to become filmmakers. I'm like, you do, huh? Are your parents rich? And the parents are there, and they're like, no. I'm like, because that's going to be anywhere from forty to sixty thousand dollars a year right. for film school, right. uh, not including food and uh, housing. And um, so that's about four years of that. So let's say let's say sixty. So $240,000, right? And then do you want to know what you do at the end of those four years? And they go, what? I'm like, you work for me as a PA. You get me coffee. That's what you do. 
with your degree. Mm -hmm. Or if you're really so passionate about film, oh, we are, we are. Well, you can save up your little monies, get yourself a little camera, uh, get Adobe Premiere. Um, it's $20 a month. Get the creative suite on your laptop. You can start shooting stuff here and wherever you live. Stay in your mom's basement, save your money, go work at a production facility during the week, save your cash and start generating some content. Because if you really, really want to do it, you'll do it. Or if you just really, really want an excuse not to perform, you'll find one. So mm -hmm. I think analysis paralysis is if you get locked up in something to such a degree, take a break and work on something easy and small and fun. Find your joy again. You know, sometimes if you're locked up in your head on a thought process, um, go do something physical. Go to the gym. Go build something with your hands. Um, go to an art museum. Go watch, uh, go read a, a great book uh, that'll help see, and you see things in a different light. Talk to somebody about it that has a completely difference of opinion, opinion of yours and see if you could restructure that thing hypothetically, in their per perspective. I'm not saying that you should. I'm saying that that experience will give you a new insight into the process. My wife is not in the film industry. She, uh, prior to COVID, she worked for a large company doing event uh, sales. Uh, she was a director of events for big rap parties, blah, blah, blah. Um, so she doesn't write scripts or edit movies or produce or direct, but... I would have her read my scripts uh, when I would be done with stuff so that if there was a moment and look, she has no education on the process. She has no right to be like, well, the formatting of the wing bat should be, no, that's not her thing. What I wanted was her innate response to the material. And also if I had screwed up by overthinking something and not doing the work itself. Because sometimes as an artist, you see it in your head, but you forgot to put it on the page or right. in the sculpture or whatever. Right. So she would read it and then respond to me with, oh my God, this one moment, I really liked it. Or this other character, why are they doing that? And I would say, well, because they had the peanut butter and jelly. No, they didn't take the peanut butter and jelly. Yes, they did on page two. No, they didn't. Oh, oh my goodness. So, you know, or I did not connect that emotionally. So trying to get, trying to get notes or input from somebody, it's, it's a dangerous line to walk because there are a lot of idiots out there who just want to give you their studio notes as they were. Like, yes, I love this, but I think what's testing better in foreign Asian audiences is a Pekingese dog as opposed to a Chihuahua. You're like, it's just a dog, man. It's not a story character. Uh, so just stop giving a crap about it. But they want to give stupid notes. So you want somebody who is not trying to sound like a smart ass, but genuinely cares about you and is not trying to blow smoke up your butt. Uh, mm -hmm. And at the same time is asking genuine questions. So if that get, helps anybody yes. that could, and again, I always, I always try to put the responsibility on the individual. And I say mm -hmm. that because that's been my experience is that if I didn't do something in my life, 
nothing happened ever. Nobody knocked on my door and gave me a pile of money or nobody offered to give me help. Nobody offered to uh, teach me how to write or teach me how to direct or edit. Nobody did anything for me. So I got what I got because I wanted it. And I saw other people do far less with much more. And I believe that if I wanted the opportunity to show what was in my head, then I might as well shut my mouth and get to work. Because uh, everybody can be an armchair anarchist or a Monday morning football coach. Right. Um, but I, I'm not scared to put myself on the line. So it just came down to shut up and put up. And uh, I think, you know, take the minute to look in the mirror and see who you want to be and be honest with yourself. If you really want it, shut the F up, get to work. And here's one secret for you. Here's a big secret for you. <laughs> do not tell people what you're going to do. Because the problem is your brain does not see the difference between your words and your actions. So if you tell people, man, I'm going to write this movie about this thing. I'm going to tell you about the whole movie. And you haven't written anything down. You haven't, you haven't done your outline, your basic story points. You haven't done any of your structure yet. If you start walking around telling all your friends about the thing you're going to make or the thing you're going to write, and you haven't done any of it yet, your brain is going to feel satisfied with the endorphin rush of your friends going, wow, man, that's fantastic. What a great idea. Oh, you're so smart, honey. And you're going to pat yourself on your mental back and be like, well, we did it. And then you lie in bed feeling confident and satisfied that you fulfilled your goals and you didn't do shit. Yep. So keep it to your damn self. You can say to people, I'm working on something. I don't want to talk about it until it's done. I can't wait to show you. That'll put the carrot at the end of the stick. But if you'd start telling everybody, oh, man, then there's, there's this one scene where we cut, the camera comes up from the sewer, man. You haven't done anything. You're just lying to yourself. Yeah. So keep, keep your secret. Make it, make it a reality. I'm working with somebody right now who is writing a, um, a movie that looks for like high schoolers. And he started telling everybody all about it. And I said, no, 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 no. Write it, put it yeah. down and then let's get it going and then say something later. And so he's changed his strategy. And so now we meet every four or five days to see what he's written. So I'm like his accountability person to make sure he stays on task because he's so gifted and has so many ideas it's easy to get distracted and not follow it. And uh, so, and that was one of my big points. So I'm glad you made that because it, I think it is important. I think it's very important to like do the work and keep it to ourselves because our brain can't tell the difference. Right. You know, that's excellent. I'm glad you brought that up. So is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to share on the show today? Cause you've, you've covered so many great things. I'm like sitting here going, yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. I don't know. Um, Trust yourself. Try. Life is short. You're going to be dead soon. You might as well do everything you can. Always yeah. take care of people. Uh, treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, be proud of your actions. Have integrity. Reputation travels very, very fast. Uh, but take a lot of risks. You never regret the risks you take. You regret the, the things you didn't try. 
Um, so don't be a wuss. Get off your ass, get to work. Life is exciting and it's it's gone really fast. It goes away really quickly. And then you, you sit there going, damn it. I wish I could have. Ah! And you had right now. You had right now. Right. Right perfect. now. Right time. Oh, that's perfect. So your last question of the day is, if we were going to have a billboard that was to go up that everybody in the world would see with your quote on it, Zach Ward at the bottom, what would that billboard say? Yeah, that's a, I, it's, it's a good, it's a good quote. The uh, great art is inspirational. Bad art is motivational. I love that quote. That's perfect. I, I got another one for you though. This is a good one. All right. People confuse drama for action. And what I, what I mean by that is, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a dual dance here. One is the reference to the genres of films, drama and action. But the reality, people confuse drama in their life. Do you know what Susie said? She can't believe that you're the secret Santa. Well, you were supposed to get Timmy that present. But if you got mom and dad that present, you have to get one for Timmy. Well, let me call Uncle Susie. They, they confuse that with actually being active in their lives. That's not action. That's, that's, that's just a, that's masturbatory. Mm -hmm. So people can, uh, human beings love to confuse drama for action. Having an argument with somebody isn't the same thing as accomplishing something. Um, taking up a, a, a sledgehammer and breaking down a wall, it's not the same thing as building one. So don't confuse drama for action Ooh. in your own life. I love that. I right. love that. I love that. It's exactly them. It, it's perfect. It's better than perfect. So everybody, you've been listening to Zach Ward from A Christmas Story, but so many other things. It's like we could go on and on and on. I love listening to your stories and the way you think. It, it totally makes sense to see how successful you've been and on point your whole career, that, that there's no accident in your success. And, and I can't wait now to go and watch all the other movies that I didn't, that I didn't even know about, especially the ones that you've produced and edited. I can't wait to see them because I have a deeper appreciation and I already thought you were great. So I really appreciate your time on the show today and being so candid and open with people to see like what it really takes to be where you are, that it's not an accident at all. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm my pleasure. Um, it's, uh, you never get to be exactly where you want to be, but the journey is a hell of a lot of fun and it makes you proud of the adventure, if that makes sense. Oh, makes perfect sense. So all of Zach's contact information is in the show notes for you. So follow him, go watch his movies and check out his new adventure that's coming out, I believe in the spring, right? Yeah, we're finishing up the VFX. Uh, so our goal is to be released in the second quarter of 2021. All right. And the keeper of the five kingdoms. Okay. So we'll have all of these links for you and, and follow him and let him know you heard him on the show. So remember, if you guys get a chance, I am, uh, my father has Alzheimer's, um, sadly. And so I'm raising money for Alzheimer's, uh, over the holidays. I'm doing cameo. Um, so if you go to cameo.com backslash Darth, Farkas, as if as if Scott Farkas was a Sith Lord. Got it. Yeah, 
So um, I'm raising the money from that is going towards raising money uh, for my dad's care in a senior facility, uh, assisted living facility. Perfect. We will put that link in the show notes as well. So you can just go there, click on it and help Zach and his family out. Thanks for mentioning that. So, so remember everybody to keep your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star and you're here on purpose with a purpose. So go out there, take some action and live your best life. Until the next episode, someone gets it. Be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.